you may be around the world and thank you for your company on truthtoyou.org. That's truth number two, letter you.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca. That's jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skoback. Hi, Jono, and how are you doing there? Doing very well, thank you, my friend. Hey, listen, you've started the Survival Seminar, haven't you? That started a few days ago. Just to remind the listeners, that is, uh, for those in the Toronto area, that began, well, it began on the 27th of January, but it goes all through February. It goes into the 3rd of March. It's free. It's on Tuesdays at 8 p.m., and uh, you need to register. Yeah. register. So it's and not it, too late, right? People can just turn up. Yeah, and if you're not in Toronto, you can, it's all been already filmed and it's on our YouTube site, so you can watch the whole thing from the comfort of your home, even if you're in Australia or in Bolivia. That's or true. Anywhere you are. Bolivia, there you go, Australia <laughs> or Bolivia. And it's not only is it on uh, on YouTube, but it's also available in an MP3 format as well. So I'm going to put a link uh, on this post so that people can, if you're outside of Toronto, you can don't feel like you're missing out. If you're in Toronto, you can see it live, and uh, I will put a link there. Goody. All right. Okay. That's that. Now, we are investigating, we are continuing to investigate the alleged 365 messianic prophecies in the Tanakh that Jesus supposedly fulfilled in the New Testament, my friend. Now, before we get there, uh, comments. DC. G'day, DC. DC. Have a listen to this. DC left this comment. I thought it was wonderful. Uh, DC said, thanks for the great discussion, Rabbi Skobak and Jono. I have a teenage daughter who was struggling, understandably, with her faith because of our complex journey from Christianity to uh, the Messianic movement to accepting Judaism. Uh, DC, I totally hear you, and that is a complex journey, and I can I can uh, sympathize with you. It goes on to say, uh, her Christian peers recently invited her to church, which resulted in a truly awakening experience. For the past seven years, we've been concentrating our studies on the Hebrew Tanakh as a family. During the church service, our daughter told us that she literally wanted to uh, stand on her seat and challenge the words of the Christian preacher because of her understanding of the Torah, but she kept her composure. It goes on to say, our daughter uh, came home very much at peace with her faith in the Hebrew Tanakh. Uh, Through the experience, she realized that she could respectfully and tactfully interact with her Christian friends, yet appreciate and understand that the Torah of her creator had graciously been instilled in her heart. Uh, DC goes on to quote a couple of Psalms, Psalm 119 verse 29, Remove from me the way of falsehood and grant me thy Torah graciously. And Psalm 119 verse 165, Great peace have they that love thy Torah, and there is no stumbling for them. Great verses. Oh boy, Psalm 119 is just brilliant all the way from the, the beginning to the end. Uh, so thank you, DC. Thanks for sharing that. I I have to say, obviously, your your daughter is um, uh, much more mature <laughs> mature than, because than I was anyway. Because it took me a long time, Rabbi Skovac, to uh, to understand to realize that I could respectfully and tactfully interact with Christian friends, yet appreciate and understand that the Torah of my Creator uh, has been instilled in my heart. It, it just because it, it's so close. Uh, to the bone when you've been brought up with it all your life. Yeah, it's also, to me, it's so wonderful to hear about someone as a teenager. You know, we're living in a world today where culture is so lacking respect and dignity and, you know, it's like sort of gotcha and put-downs and, you know, the whole culture is often so disrespectful and arrogant. So to see a young woman who, you know, is able to, with grace and with dignity and with respect, 
you know, uh, interact with others without having to, you know, um, put people down or to knock people's mm. beliefs. Really, I, I'm so thrilled to hear about that. Uh, you know, mm. thank God. Thank so God. Thanks, thanks for sharing, DC, and I wish I could have figured that one out when I was a teenager. So, we are moving on. 365. Uh, in the list, and uh, on that list, we are up to 198. Now, we are using the new revised standard version supplied by Carmen of the RefinersFire.org, the RefinersFire.org, and on that list, uh, she streamlined it for us somewhat down to 302. Now, I'm a little bit, I, I'm just going to say really quickly, <laughs> someone brought to my attention, no, it was, uh, who was it? It was Victor and Bora Forsman. G'day, guys. Thanks for your comment on Facebook. They brought to my attention that Cummins using other, quote, other messianic prophecies on her website that isn't even in her list of 302. Uh, for example, I think she, she said, oh, here we go, Genesis uh, 18 verses 1 to 14, Genesis 32 verses 24 to 30, Exodus 24 verses 9 to 11, and Proverbs chapter 30 verse 4. We're not even going to get into it now, but apparently those uh, passages there, she believes, uh, are prophecies that prove that... Uh, uh, God will come in the flesh, something like that. And I said, do you think these belong on the list? Well, she declined to answer. Um, so we seem to be all over the place. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, we are working with the list that she has supplied, and that has been refined down. It's been through the refiner's fire, and it's down to 302. And on that one, we are kicking off from number 146. There is a link to both of these lists on this post. Now, uh, 146 begins with Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. And we're in, we're in the 40s. How about that? Let's see if we can get through them. It, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, the corresponding verse, uh, according to the list in the New Testament, is Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. And uh, it says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the uh, wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight, uh, make his path straight. Now, John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. It's a great diet. That's great. Have you, have you ever tried it? I mean, locusts, that, that's kosher. Right? Some, some that locusts, I'm locusts or, but, I, but I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> oh, but there you go. You can go with the honey. <laughs> what do you make of it? What is Isaiah talking about here? Well, you know, when we're getting to these chapters here in Isaiah, it's interesting that um, these are, for the most part, what we would call messianic prophecies, meaning that these coming chapters of Isaiah are speaking about the um, future redemption, the end of the exile, uh, you know, the transformation of the world into the utopian messianic age. So that's pretty clear, and that's why I think it's sort of good news and it's bad news for the uh, Christological interpretation of these passages, because uh, in general, we're talking about passages that are messianic. The $64,000 question is going to be, are they about the person of the Messiah, or are they simply describing something that will be taking place during the Messianic Age? Here, it's sort of funny, because here, th there, this, this verse is really mistaken in terms of how it's interpreted, although they get it right in the sense that it, this claim is taught really somewhere else in the Bible. Um, the truth is that this verse in Isaiah is not speaking about a forerunner. 
And it doesn't in the Hebrew really speak about a voice of the one, of someone who is in the wilderness. It's basically, a basic, it's essentially speaking about a voice that's calling out in the wilderness and usually understood to be um, a heavenly voice. Um, and it's really basically a heavenly voice that's, that's announcing the end of the exile, and, okay. uh, which is fine. And th- the truth is that this idea of a forerunner, however, is taught very clearly at the end of the book of Malachi, or what Christians sometimes call Malachi. Um, so that their, their idea here is correct. It's just the wrong proof text. It's not in Isaiah, but it's in Malachi. And uh, I believe it's in Matthew chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 17 where they specifically identify this forerunner as John the Baptizer. It's really actually, hmm. it's a misnomer to call him John the Baptist. It's almost like, it sounds like John the Presbyterian or John the Episcopalian. <laughs> so he wasn't a Baptist, but he was the, a baptizer. In Hebrew, he would have been called Yohanan Hamatbil. He was the one that immersed people. He was, sometimes they do call him John the Immerser. Um, so John the Baptizer is the one in, in the book of Matthew that is repeatedly identified as this uh, forerunner of the Messiah. So what's happening here is this. Uh, the Hebrew scriptures do teach that before the Messianic age, and obviously then before the coming of the Messiah, there would be a return of Elijah the prophet. That's very mm-hmm. clearly taught, not here in Isaiah, but it's taught at the end of the book of Malachi. And uh, that is, I guess, who uh, this, this list interprets as the forerunner um, from Isaiah. But Isaiah is not teaching about this prophet Elijah returning. Um, That's kind of funny, though, isn't it? I mean, I guess in, in Matthew chapter 11 that you pointed out, it, it connects the two. It, it says, it quotes from, from this passage in Isaiah, and then it goes on to say, and Jesus says, and if you are willing to accept it, John the Baptist is Elijah, who is to come. Exactly. But but the funny thing about that, and it's just one of my pet funny things, is that in, I think it's John chapter yes. 1, verse 21. Yes, they what? ask him to, to his face, are you Elijah? And he says, no, I'm not. So uh, he couldn't accept it. Well, <laughs> I think that... He wasn't willing to accept it. I think that in Matthew, he's not speaking to John the baptizer, if you're willing to accept this mission upon yourself. I think he's saying about others, if you will accept him as Elijah. But um, the question is, is John the baptizer Elijah or isn't he? Um, And, you know, as we say, he either is or isn't. And Mm. when they ask him to his face, he says, no, he's not. Um, Mm. The way many Christian apologists deal with that denial in John chapter 1 is to say, well, he isn't actually Elijah the prophet, but I think it's in Luke chapter 17, I think, um, or 13, where it speaks about um, John the baptizer being someone who's come in the spirit of Elijah the prophet. Um, Mm. There are several problems with that. First of all, when you go to the passage of Malachi, it uses the Hebrew word et, which in Hebrew always is a word that precedes the direct object of the sentence. Mm-hmm. So it's saying in Malachi that it's not someone's going to come back in the spirit of Elijah. It says specifically it's Elijah himself who will return. And we know from the scriptures that Elijah didn't die. He went straight up to heaven alive. And so mm-hmm. the Bible speaks about him himself returning in the flesh, not someone coming in his spirit. And another thing is that when they asked John the baptizer, are you Elijah, 
he didn't say, well, I'm not actually Elijah the prophet in the flesh, but I have come in his spirit. I mean, that John the baptizer denies any connection or association with Elijah the prophet mm. altogether. And then finally, what the prophecy says about the return of Elijah is that he will return the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the hearts of the sons to the fathers. True. It's not clear what that means, but however you wanted to spin it, there's no evidence that John the baptizer accomplished that in any way, shape, or form. Um, so again, you have here basically this concept, which in the Hebrew scriptures has the Messiah being preceded by Elijah the prophet, and you don't see this fulfilled in the New Testament. You don't see the return of Elijah the prophet, and you don't really see the uh, beginning of the utopian messianic age. So mm. um, basically what you have here is a messianic prophecy, not about um, this chapter uh, in Isaiah, is not really speaking about the person of the Messiah, but it is speaking about what's going to be taking place in the messianic age. And the simple reality is that it hasn't happened. It's describing a redemption that has not yet happened. We're still awaiting it. So at best, what Christians will be forced to say is that all of these wonderful developments will take place in the uh, at the second coming of Jesus, which is fine, but then there's no proof that he's accomplished this yet. Mm. And I'll just highlight before we move on, and this is just on the side, at the end of Malachi, it does say, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet uh, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, uh, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now, if John the Baptist, uh, the John the Baptizer did that, it... it it would, it would have been short-lived anyway because Jesus follows up uh, saying that he came to bring a sword between the children and the parents. Yeah, <laughs> it's tough. All right, tough to moving on. By the way, it, that's a, a, a dreadful translation of Malachi. Um, it, 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 it often is translated as the um, awful day of the Lord, the great and awful mm -hmm. day or dreadful. The, the better translation would be awesome. Um, yeah. It's really speaking about an awesome, amazing transformation that's going to be taking place. And may it happen soon. Uh, number 147 on the New Revised Standard is uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, which says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The corresponding verse according to the list is John chapter 1 verses 33 to 36. It says, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Uh, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, according to the list, the messianic prophecy fulfilled is behold your God. I'm not kidding. That's what it says. <laughs> <laughs> well, so here's another, we've had so many of these where the, the passage is clearly speaking about the creator, the almighty. Mm. And uh, this is, again, when we think about what is the, one of the major centerpieces of the utopian messianic age? It's interesting that if you look at the teachings of Jesus and John the Baptizer, one of the, the most frequent things they said was that the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And mm-hmm. that really is. That's that's one of the major things, one of the major themes you look forward to in the mm-hmm. in the future utopian messianic age is that there'll be a universal knowledge of God. And I it's see. taught repeatedly so many times throughout the Bible in Isaiah that the knowledge of God will be as spread out as the waters that cover the oceans. And in Zechariah 14, that in that day, God will be one and his name will be one. And in Zechariah 8, which speaks about the whole world coming to follow the Jewish people because they know that God is with the Jewish people. And mm. Jeremiah 31, which says in that day, there'll be no more need to teach people to believe in God, for they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. I mean, and this comes up, there are literally uh, at least a dozen or more passages which speak about the idea that in the utopian uh, messianic age, the whole world will come to know God personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what really the, the the teaching of the Christian scriptures here seems to be, at least the list maker, is asserting that this is speaking about Jesus and that they're essentially equating Jesus with God. Um, one of the things that's clear in the Hebrew Bible is that the Messiah is certainly not God. Isaiah chapter 11 says that the Messiah will be someone who fears God. Um, Isaiah just should have simply said the Messiah will be God, but chose to tell us very clearly the Messiah will be someone who fears God. And throughout the Mm. Bible, the scriptures differentiate between God and the descendant of David who will come in the future. Um, So this again, this is speaking clearly this is a messianic prophecy, but again, it's not about the person of the Messiah. It's speaking about what will the world look like when the Messiah is here. And one of the things that will be is that God will be known throughout the entire world. Now, I would just point out that what is so peculiar about this particular passage in John is that you have, uh, this is, I guess, when John uh, baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River, um, it, it appears also in the book of Matthew, chapter 3, you know, mm-hmm. where he sees the dove coming upon, I guess it's the Holy Spirit, and he hears this voice calling out that this is my son. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here, it's interesting that in, in John chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 3, you apparently have John the baptizer um, being informed that Jesus is the Son of God or Jesus is God. I mean, it's a pretty powerful Uh, experience that he has. But then if you just look a few chapters later in Matthew 11, um, where you see John the baptizer is in prison and he sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Now, Mm. it's hard to imagine how in just the course of eight chapters, he forgot this incredible experience where he was told that Jesus was God or the Son of God or clearly understood to mean that he's the Messiah. So, it's sort of a strange uh, sort of contrast, odd. yeah, I would say. Um, in any event, I, I would simply say in number 147 here that um, it's speaking about the idea that the whole world is going to behold God. has not happened yet. It's not a fulfilled prophecy. Uh, we would say that there's no reason to believe it's speaking about Jesus mm. because he simply isn't the creator. He's a created being. Fair enough. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Corresponding verse according to the list is John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Hmm. The, uh, the messianic prophecy, according to the list, Messiah would be as a shepherd. 
That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to be honest, you know, with everything that Jesus said about shepherding and sheep and everything, I've always thought he's the kind of guy I'd like to employ, you know, on a farm. You know, I am sick of, I'm going to go on a rant for a second. I'm sick of <laughs> uh, modern day farming. I think it's absolutely disgusting in so many ways, the way that livestock is treated. And I always think to myself, you know, if, if Jesus was in my country town, I would definitely be employing him as a farmhand. I, I like the way he talks about it. But uh, modern day farming uh, and uh, the handling of livestock uh, today, I think, is just absolutely terrible. That's all I'm going to say. Well, that's the Luddite Minute from John O'Reilly. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my, just one of those things that really gets gets on my nerve and, uh, but I, I am sure, uh, I am certain that Jesus would have been a very caring, uh, if, if, you've, if he had a flock of sheep, I don't doubt that he would really look after them. And like, like David, uh, you know, even if a, if a lamb was taken by a bear or, 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 a, or a lion, he would go after it. And he wouldn't just go, oh, well, that's one less. You know, he, he went after it to retrieve it. Those are the good old days. They're the good old days. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you read this this passage and it's very clear that it's speaking again about uh, the creator, the Almighty. If you go back just one verse to verse 10, it says, Behold, my Lord, the Almighty God, comes with might. And mm-hmm. then in verse 11, he's the one that comes as a shepherd. So it's not really referring here to the Messiah. It's not a messianic prophecy. This, again, is just speaking about God. Um, what's happening in this chapter, basically of Isaiah, and it's a, it's a theme that really runs through these chapters, is Isaiah here really speaking, is speaking to the nations of the world. And the previous verses spoke about the end of the exile for Israel. Uh, that's really one of the major themes of these chapters in Isaiah, is the redemption of Israel, that Israel was going to end their exile, they're going to achieve their uh, redemption back in their land, serving as the uh, light to the nations. And now Isaiah explains to the nations how God is going to be able to accomplish this, meaning that when the previous verses speak about the ending of the exile and the redemption of the Jewish people, Isaiah now explains that this can happen very simply because God is the creator. He has incredible power. He can do anything. And so this passage, this, these, these, these verses from Isaiah chapter 11 until, uh, uh, Isaiah 40, 11 until 17 approximately, is really a, a beautiful uh, meditation on God as the creator, how much power he has, and that mm. he will be able to accomplish all of this. Because it seems, when you think about it, you know, the Jews have been uh, the most downtrodden people in history, and people mm. certainly could scratch their head and wonder, how is it possible to imagine that these people that have been so despised and rejected and scattered and persecuted, they're going to emerge as the leaders of the world? And so here Isaiah is sharing with the nations of the world, don't, don't think that it's impossible because the Lord, the Almighty, created the world, he can certainly redeem his people. Mm. Amen. The next one is Isaiah chapter 40, yeah, 42, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. The corresponding verse, according to the list in the New Testament, uh, Matthew twelve fourteen to 18. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and uh, great multitudes followed him, and 
He healed them all, uh, yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by, the, by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant, I have chosen my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. The messianic prophecy fulfilled, according to the list, is that the Messiah would be God's servant. Well, no, no kidding. I mean, <laughs> isn't all, good heavens, all Mashiach, I mean, the, whether it be the high priest or it be the king, is the servant of God, right? Indeed. And actually, every Jew is supposed to be a servant of God. Every human being should be a servant of God. So here, it's interesting. This is probably one of the few that we've done so far that could be speaking about the person of the Messiah. So we have to ring our bell, ding, 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 ding. Um, we really haven't had many of these. Uh, and here you have a genuine bona fide passage that is describing not just the Messianic age, but the person of the Messiah. Although it's a little bit complicated because when you get into these, uh, they're called the servant songs of Isaiah, uh, there seems to be a confluence, really, of the servant being both the nation of Israel, and that's the primary identification of the servant. We'll see that Isaiah um, almost ten times repeats that the servant is Israel, the nation of Israel. Mm. But the king, the Messiah, is the king of the nation. And so the Messiah almost personifies the nation. He's the leader of the nation. So when the Messiah functions, it's very important to understand this. Often Christians have an idealized uh, concept of the Messiah that's almost removed from humanity. But in the Hebrew scriptures, the Messiah is the Jewish king. He's the king of a people, and he leads a people. And so you have here in the chapter 42 the confluence of both the servant being the nation of Israel and the person of the Messiah who's the king of Israel. So you could say very, very legitimately that the 42nd chapter is speaking about the Messiah, the person of the Messiah, um, but again, this is a prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled. So it doesn't really help Jesus to, to know that the Messiah is going to be God's servant. That's fine. It doesn't prove that it's talking about Jesus. And when we look at the chapter here, um, we see that it's describing a transformation of the world that has not yet happened, that there's going to be justice brought to, the, to all the nations. This is a theme that's also taught in Isaiah chapter 11. So what you have here is, again, part of this generalized picture of what the messianic age will look like. It's really speaking about a radical transformation of the world order, which has not happened. And so we do know that the Messiah will preside over this transformed world, the Messiah, as God's agent, will certainly be God's servant. And it doesn't identify Jesus as that servant. So mm -hmm. all you really have, and we've seen this so many times over the past few weeks, is the New Testament just making the assertion, Jesus is the Messiah, um, because we say so. But because it, we say so. Yeah, and it, it, it doesn't correspond to the reality of what the Hebrew Scriptures speak about. They're really speaking about something that has not yet happened. There's no denying this. I mean, it's very clear that none of the uh, features, none of the contours of what this utopian messianic age was supposed to look like has happened yet. Uh, so we're still awaiting all of these prophecies to be fulfilled. So it may be, in fact, I, now could be the second time that Israel is referred to 
as my servant. I think the, maybe the first, is it uh, Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8, it says, But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. And, uh, and it goes on to say, You are my servant, I have chosen you, and have not cast you away. Now, while verse 42, verse 1 may be in reference to uh, the king, the Messiah, uh, verse 6, uh, I'm to understand, says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will hold your hand. I will give you, uh, I will keep you and give you as a Brit Am, a covenant people. Is that correct? Is that what it says? Yeah, I mean, again, that's one of the reasons why I mentioned that this chapter sort of um, is a, a confluence of both the the nation concept mm-hmm. here and the the personification of the nation and the servant, the Messiah. Um, I think that actually the, verse six is on the list here. Um, verse six is on the list, so yeah. we will we will be getting to it. So that's I, I just throw that in uh, uh, because it it, it may because there's we're going to come to uh, other examples where it talks about seems to be talking about. Uh, the, uh, Israel collectively as one singular person, and we'll see examples of that as we continue to go on. The, the next one on the by list. By the way, yeah. uh, the the identification of the servant of the Lord as Israel is not just in the book of Isaiah. I mean, it goes back, I believe, the first time is in Leviticus. You have several references, and it's throughout. Jeremiah speaks about. It. I mean, it's it's a um, it's a reference that is throughout the Hebrew scriptures in many, many, mm. many books, but it finds its, you know, its, its most uh, bold uh, repetition here in Isaiah. I think mm. even in Luke, by the way, I believe Luke chapter 1, verse 52, if I'm not mistaken, also speaks about Israel as God's servant, but I may be wrong on that one. It's been many Luke years since... One. I may be wrong on that. No, I'm looking, I'm looking. Luke chapter 1, I haven't verse been 52. taking my ginkgo biloba so much. <laughs> <laughs> Um, am I right? So, lo and behold, you're absolutely right. Uh, verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Hmm. There you go. Well, people, are, we're warming up to Isaiah 53, aren't we? But we have to keep going. <laughs> Isaiah 42, verse 2, he will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Corresponding verse in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. Come to me, all of you who labor, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. According to the list, the messianic prophecy fulfilled is not forceful, not draw attention to himself. I really, uh, (laughs) I had to sort of take a long look at this one. Um, Look, if it's discussing the Messiah, what it's saying is that the Messiah will be someone who won't need bluster to get people to follow his teachings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that's what they're reading in here, that this Messiah will not be forceful, will not draw attention to himself. The problem I had with this is that the very verse that um, is quoted here in Matthew seems to be the exact opposite. When he says, come to me all who are weary and heaven laden, he's calling attention to himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting is that it's very hard to apply this description of not forceful to Jesus. I mean, throughout the Gospels, he very sternly demands that people accept him without question. I mean, most you know, people, I think, if they're really uh, reasonable, would not expect people simply to accept 
uh, a dramatic claim without questioning or wanting to verify. And Jesus is constantly uh, simply demanding that people accept him unquestioningly, um, and he threatens people that they're going to go to hell if they don't accept him or believe in him. So it's hard to 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 uh, sort of tie this description of Jesus into... Yeah, the overall picture doesn't quite correspond into this forceful. Uh, parallel. And then, mm. according to some people, he I don't believe that Jesus did, but according to many Christians, he claimed to be God. So I don't see how you square someone who is claiming to be God with a description of someone who is not forceful. I mean, I think that's, sure. I think that's as forceful as you can get to make the assertion that you're a God. Uh, <laughs> now, speaking of assertions, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 3, it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. The corresponding uh, verse in the New Testament, according to the list, Matthew chapter 11, verse 4 and 5, Jesus answered. Now, when, when it says Jesus answered, let's go back a little bit, because uh, you were talking about this verse. And uh, what it does say is that uh, John, as, as you mentioned, John sent some of his disciples and said, are you the coming one? Are you the Christ? I mean, should we look for another? And uh, Jesus answered them and said, go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see, the lame walk, the lips are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor uh, have the gospel preached to them, and blessed be he who was not offended because of me. So basically Jesus has said, well, go and tell him about all the miracles that I've done. That's case closed. But it shouldn't be the case, should it? No. <laughs> I think we've discussed that in the past. We have discussed um, that in the past, that miracles are verification of nothing, really, are they? Well, the, the miracles have some significance, but they certainly would not prove that someone is the Messiah. I mean, you have right here in the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verse 24, where it says that false messiahs will mm. be able to do miracles. So once you have a, a principle that false messiahs can do miracles then a miracle cannot prove that someone is the true Messiah. Um, what, what I found peculiar about this particular entry was that it speaks about the Messiah as having compassion for the poor and needy. Now, it's very important to understand that uh, the only uh, entries that really should be on this list should be entries that are unique to the Messiah, meaning that you know, if it would say that the Messiah will be someone who has breakfast in the morning, I mean, that, it's almost irrelevant <laughs> because half the free world or the, almost everyone does that. And so, I mean... We have a Torah. We have a Torah that tells that all Israel, or, or every Jew should be compassionate towards the poor and the needy, right. the fatherless, the widow, and so on and so forth. That, that We have Torah in, in that regard. We have instruction. Uh, Leviticus 19, right? It talks, talks a lot to this regard, I think. Now, not many, not everyone fulfills those teachings, but the truth of the matter is that a significant number of people, but both you and I know people in our lives that have mm. compassion for the poor and needy. So really, the only things that should really be on a list like this are things that are unique to the Messiah that were uniquely fulfilled by Jesus. And so here it becomes a little bit trivial to, you know, put on a list something that, you know, is, is something that, you know, maybe half the people in your neighborhood have fulfilled. But what I find peculiar here, and maybe this is not such a dramatic point, but I think it's almost ironic that the the statement here is that Jesus is someone who has compassion for the poor and the needy. Now, in Matthew 26, there's a very famous story where a woman comes with very expensive perfume to anoint Jesus. Mm -hmm. And his disciples get very, very upset, and they feel it's a waste of money because they say, look, the, 
that that could have been sold and the money could have been given to the poor. That's what they said. That's what they say. And Jesus says, don't worry, the poor you will always have. You won't always have me. Now, I don't know. I mean, I think Christians assume they always have Jesus, but I want to focus on his words, the poor you will always have, meaning that idea that since the poor are always going to be here, you don't have to feel there's any great need to give charity to them now. Mm. But if you look in the Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 10 to 11, that idea that the poor you will always have is precisely the reason why we're told to always give and always be generous. Meaning that mm. what Deuteronomy 15 says is that you should always generously give to the poor. Why? Because it says the poor will never cease from the land. Mm. And so it seems to be the exact opposite thinking of what Jesus says. He says that because the poor will always be here, there's no great urgency to take care of them now. Um, mm. So I don't see in that story in Matthew 26 someone who seems to demonstrate tremendous compassion for the poor and needy. I think his disciples certainly did in that case. True. Um, True. No, very good point. So the next one on the list is, uh, here we are, Isaiah 42, verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you. And now this is what it says in my New King James Version. It says, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. But I do believe, and maybe you can confirm, I do believe it says, I will keep you and give you as a covenant people, a Brit am, as a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. Yeah, I think the question is how you translate that. You know, do you translate Brit Am as a um, covenant people or as a, um, you know, to the well, to what would the it nations? mean to be? What would it mean to be a covenant to the people? It's a good question. It could be that uh, what that would mean is that there's, covenant always means a relationship. And so the relationship God has with the Jewish nation that our covenant with God is that we are to be uh, serving, really, the, the rest of humanity. That's why in Exodus 19, uh, God says that we are to be a, a holy nation, the kingdom of priests. So mm. that's our task in the world. We're, the Jewish mm. nation are really here. Our role, if you will, is to be priests, teachers. To, and to shine the light of Torah in the world. Exactly. I mean, that's all part and parcel, right? So, it, it, it makes sense to me that it would be interpreted that way. Uh, the corresponding verse, Luke chapter 2, verse 32, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now, the, cor the uh, Messianic prophecy fulfilled according to the list is light of the Gentiles. Okay, I have a little bit of a rant here. <laughs> Go on. I'll try and make it fast. First of all, um, you know, you certainly again could say that this is a, um, a a verse which does speak both about the Jewish nation that we are supposed to be a nation that's supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, and of course, it could be about the Messiah as well that he will be leading this nation as the light to the the Gentiles. So he also becomes part of that light. True. Um, the question is, does that take place in the life of Jesus? And all you really have here is a pronouncement that is made by Simon over the baby Jesus. I mean, that I, I don't take that pronouncement necessarily as any kind of serious fulfillment of what uh, this verse is really describing. You know, it's one thing to actually bring the light of Torah to the nations of the world. It's another thing for someone simply to say that this baby, you know, is that light to the nations. Mm -hmm. But I'll go a little bit deeper here. Um, you know, could you really say that Jesus was a light to the Gentiles? Uh, we know that during his ministry, 
Most people think it was only three years. Um, he repeatedly says that he only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You have, for example, the famous story in Matthew 15, where a Canaanite woman comes to him, and he basically brushes her off and says he's only here for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Mm-hmm. And she says, uh, yeah, but I need you to take care of me. And he says, we don't take the bread of the children and throw it to the dogs. Hmm. Now, so now, yeah, so again, I mean, he ends up uh, being humbled and uh, chastened by her response that even the dogs have to eat the scraps from the master's table. But the point is that we don't see during his ministry that he really had any kind of uh, global outreach. He says to his disciples, for example, in Matthew 10, verse 5, he tells them that you're supposed to go out and spread my teachings, but don't go to the cities of the Samaritans or the Gentiles. So you don't really have in the lifetime of Jesus any kind of international ministry. He's simply always focusing on the Jewish people. Now, the, the, to me, the great tragedy and the great irony, and I'm someone actually who is fairly sympathetic to Jesus. I believe that um, my personal belief is that he, in all likelihood, was a Torah-observant Jew. Mm. I don't believe that he uh, claimed to be God or, or demanded that people worship him as God, but I do think he thought he was the Messiah. And I think that there's nothing evil about thinking that you're the Messiah. I think that deep down inside... It's a healthy impulse to think that you might be the agent through which God might transform the world to a better place. Mm. And I think that that's what Jesus thought about himself. I believe that um, you know he never came to start a new religion. We know, for example, in Matthew 19:17, where the young you know person comes to Jesus saying, "How do I achieve eternal life?" Oh, good teacher. And he says, "Why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that's God. Mm. And if you want eternal life, keep the commandments." So here you're basically seeing, and, and I, th- I believe personally, this is the, the, the basic thrust of Jesus' ministry, is that he believed that he was the Messiah. Uh, he didn't come to uh, abolish the Torah. He really thought that God would use him to transform the world. And what to me is so tragic and ironic is that um, historical Christianity didn't really continue his mission. I mean, that... I believe he um, was a monotheist and worshipped, as he says to this young man, there's only one God, one good, and that's God. And what happened in historical churchianity is the, really the spread of idolatry, the worship of Jesus, meaning that Christianity was not so much a religion um, uh, really focusing on what Jesus taught, but it's more really a religion about what people taught about Jesus. And it was to worship him as God, to worship him as part of a trinity. So what you had over the past 2,000 years was a worship of Jesus as God. Uh, Along the way, a total dissing or dismissing of the Torah. Um, Historical Christianity really, to a great extent, negated the laws, the teachings of the Old Testament um, to a great extent. I mean, we know that even the early... Uh, Jewish Christians were persecuted by the church. The Ebionites and the Nazareans were persecuted by the growing Gentile church for their observance of the Torah. And so mm. you had over the you know centuries that just came right after the first century was a movement that didn't really continue the teachings of Jesus. They taught to 
who worshipped Jesus as God. They taught that the Torah was no longer binding. They certainly taught a lot of Jew hatred and persecution of Jews. Mm. So I think that really what could have been a um, you know a, a movement that was positive um, was not continued at all. It really was sort of abruptly discontinued. And so I don't really think that uh, you know Jesus unfortunately was a light to the Gentiles. I think that it could have been. Um, I think that unfortunately it didn't happen. Fair case. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 7, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Corresponding verse is uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 27 to 30, which is basically a story about Jesus healing a couple of blind men. The uh, uh, messianic prophecy fulfilled is blind eyes opened. So this is... um Again, uh, as we said, this is about what is going to be happening in the Messianic Age. And it's very clear to me that what Isaiah was not describing was uh, a a miracle that would simply happen to one or two people. I think Mm. that what Isaiah is really talking about is much grander, is much more significant. Um, It's really speaking about a transformation that will take place in the world. I think if you look at verse 16 in this chapter... So, if 42 verse 16, um, I'll bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will mm-hmm. lead them in paths I have not known. It seems to be speaking about not a literal uh, healing of people that are unsighted, but a um, really a redemption from spiritual blindness. And um, that seems to be what's really being described in Isaiah that one of the things that will take place in this redeemed, transformed world is, uh, well, probably both. Probably it's the redemption of Israel from exile and their own spiritual blindness and a healing of the spiritual blindness of the nations, meaning that, you know, the world is broken now and the world in many ways is not seeing clearly. The world doesn't see um, God clearly. That's one of the things that we're taught will happen in the messianic age is that God will be mm. revealed. It's not as if God's not here now. It's just that not everyone's seeing him. So we are having here in Isaiah a description of really a transformation that will be universal uh, throughout the world. And it's just very clear again that this passage in Isaiah has not yet been fulfilled. We still await the fulfillment of this. Now, just uh, you mentioned verse 16, and uh, it does continue on in that vein. In fact, I want to read that. It says, uh, I will bring the blind by the way they did not know. I will lead them in the paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images, who say to the molded images, you are our gods. Hear you deaf and look, you blind, that you may see. Now, then it goes on in verse 19, and it's still talking about the servant that we read read about it in verse 1 of uh, chapter 42. It says, who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send? You don't hear a lot of Christians applying that verse to Jesus, but it's it's still talking about the servant and the messenger, right? It's interesting that one of the things that the, the, the New Testament says is that, um, that the nation of Israel is blind. So I guess this is one of the places where they would agree that the servant is speaking about Israel. 
Mm. Um, but it's a bit of cherry picking, isn't it? I mean, you can't okay. apply it to one in, in, in verse one and then apply it to someone else in verse 19 when it's clearly talking about the same. Anyway, something to think about. But we're about to leave. Before we do leave uh, chapter 42, I'm also going to read uh, verse 8. It says, I am, and it has the tetragrammaton there, yud heh vav I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. All right. The next one on the list is Isaiah 43, verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord, and there, and besides me, there is no Savior. We may as well pack up and go home now, can't we? I mean, now that I've read that. I mean, good heavens. Oh, dear me. How, what are they going to do with this one? I, even I, am the Lord. There's the Tetragrammaton. And besides me, there is no Savior. The corresponding verse is Acts chapter 4, verse 2 says, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The the, uh, messianic prophecy fulfilled, according to the list, is the only redeemer. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) well, look, uh, what's clearly being asserted here um, is that the Savior is is uh, is Jesus? That's the Christian claim. Um, it seems, you know, by the m- m- uh, mathematical uh, associative principle, you know, they say if A is B and B is C, then A is C. Mm-hmm. Um, then it seems to be equating Jesus with God, um, because unless they have some way of splitting the difference here. Um, but what's interesting is that. In Isaiah, not just in Isaiah, but throughout the Bible, when it speaks about God being the savior of the Jewish people and the whole concept of salvation, um, it's just very, very different than the way Peter um, implies it here in his little speech in the book of Acts. Mm. Because when he's saying that there's no other name um, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, he's referring to the Christian concept of salvation that we saw back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, where it says that Mm -hmm. he'll be named Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. That's the focus of the Christian scriptures. That, um, you know, because, I, I, I mean, I think this is pretty clear to me, that because Jesus did not fulfill the um, role of the Messiah that's clearly taught in the Hebrew scriptures, there had to be an, a new concept of the Messiah that was developed that um, they could propose. Um, it's very clear that he didn't bring about the kind of salvation um, and redemption that Isaiah chapter 43 verse 11 is speaking about. I mean that mm-hmm. all of these chapters in Isaiah are speaking about not some eth- uh, spiritual redemption that only uh, takes place in the ethereal realms in heaven – it's speaking about a real transformation of this world. It's speaking about a breaking of the swords and, and weapons of war and the spears and pruning hooks. And it's speaking about the lion lying down with the lamb. And it's speaking about a real peace where people will not be afraid. It's speaking about political transformation. It's speaking about the whole world living in real physical peace. It's speaking about the Jewish people coming back to their homeland, it's speaking about the temple being rebuilt. It's very, very uh, terrestrial. And mm-hmm. because Jesus did not fulfill that, what ended up happening in the early church 
was a radical transformation of the messianic concept into one which was spiritualized. And so what happens is in uh, the Christian uh, dictionary, the word save or salvation just means something totally different than what it means in the Hebrew scriptures. And um, I think we've discussed this in the past several times, that if you just Mm -hmm. go back to the um, Hebrew scriptures and you look up the word savior and salvation and saving, it's referring to um, people being rescued from physical or political uh, danger. And Mm. what Peter is talking about here is that you can be saved essentially from your sins, that you'll be redeemed from your sins. Um, you see that in, I think, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, I believe, where Paul says that um, that's ultimately um, the whole purpose of the Messiah is to die for our sins, he says. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's, the, that's essentially the, the whole program of the Christian Bible. It's interesting, by the way, that in um, Romans, I think it's chapter 11, um, Paul says that the Redeemer will come to Zion and he will turn Jacob away from sin. He'll remove the sin from Jacob. Um, and he's apparently quoting a passage in Isaiah. We'll get to that, I guess, in the future weeks. In chapter 59, where Isaiah says that this Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn away from sin. So what you find is that the program for redemption in the Hebrew Bible is that the Jewish people have to basically repent. There has to be a national uh, revival among the Jewish people. You see this in Deuteronomy chapter 30, for example, where it speaks about the, the nation of Israel returning to God. And that sort of kickstarts this whole program where God brings about, as a result of the Israeli, the Israel, people of Israel really assuming their, their national mission of turning to him, um, of then bringing about the redemption. And so uh, Isaiah mm. chapter 59 says the same thing, that the Redeemer will come to Zion to those who've turned away from sin. But what happens in the Christian model, because of their belief that we don't have the ability to turn from sin, they don't believe that people have the ability to, to ultimately be righteous. Paul teaches in Galatians that if we could be righteous, then Jesus died in vain. So the whole uh, enterprise becomes one where the whole mission of the Redeemer from a Christian perspective, mm-hmm. is to basically deal with our sin problem. That the Messiah has to deal with our sin problem because we are incapable of doing so. Even though in the Bible, God says at the very beginning, chapter 4, verse 7 of Genesis, that sin will always tempt us, but God says, but you can rule over it. We have the ability mm-hmm. to rule over sin. Um, yes. So anyway, that's what I find to be uh, peculiar here. Um, that certainly is. Yeah. So, well, before we move on, uh, the next one is in Isaiah chapter 44, but I just want to read uh, Isaiah 43 verses 10 and 11 together. I read 11, but I really do feel like it would be a shame if we didn't read 10. It says, and then, and this is one of the uh, examples where yes. uh, Israel is being spoken of uh, collectively as, as, a, as a people and then referred to as a singular. It says, you are my witnesses, plural, says the Lord, and my servant, singular, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and, there, and beside me there is no Savior. Love those verses. 
All right, yeah, the next one on the list. Uh, John, yeah. when, you, when you go through these chapters of Isaiah, it's quite amazing. Um, starting around with chapter 40, it, it's really, you can collect you know, dozens of, of verses which are actually an incredibly beautiful, um, grand polemic against uh, you know, any kind of um, theology which uh, compromises the absolute unity of God. Yes. I mean, it's the it's the it's the uh, it, it, it's a sermon that's been being given here by God over and over and over again in cha- chapters forty and forty one mm. and forty two and forty three and forty five is an incredibly powerful chapter where it, it just and it says it in so many different ways um, that you cannot compare anything to me. There's nothing like me. There's mm. no savior but me, and yes. uh, God seems to be trying to. Emphasized, and it's almost maybe prophetic. I want to use the word uh, that it's specifically in these chapters where Christians are so uh, drawn to because they see, uh, you know, they believe that this is really their fountain uh, from which they draw so much inspiration. They believe that they see Jesus in so many of these passages, and so it's right here where Christians are so drawn that God is giving us this ongoing sermon over and over and over again, hitting mm. us with the idea that he is one, he's absolutely one, there is no other. There is no other. Yeah. That's right. And we won't be jumping over those. In fact, uh, the next one is Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, but I'm going to start in verse 1. Hear me now, O Jacob, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. For thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you? Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty, and floods on dry ground, and I will pour my spirit on your descendants, and my blessing on your offspring. Now, the corresponding uh, verse in the New Testament, according to the list, is John chapter 16, verses 7 and verses 13. It says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, uh, it is to your advantage that I go away. Yeah, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Verse 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. The the, uh, messianic uh, prophecy fulfilled according to the list is he will send the spirit. Yeah, I mean, to me, this is uh, there's something disturbing about this passage because it's a very blatant example of it's called supersessionism or replacement theology. Because mm-hmm. um, what John is really saying here is that Jesus is going to send the third part of the Trinity, the Helper, the Paraclete, sometimes it's called, or the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. to whom it's to those who believe in Him. And uh, it, when we read Isaiah, it's very, very clear that Isaiah is really a, it's a promise that God is making with his servant Israel, with the people of Israel and their progeny, their descendants. So this is a, a passage which in its context in Isaiah is clearly speaking about the nation of Israel, the people of Jacob and of, of the children, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what really has to happen to be able to transfer this over to the church um, is to essentially replace the nation of Israel with the church, with the believers in Jesus. Mm. And, you know, unfortunately, the church has had a history 
at least many um, parts of the church of really uh, uh, liking to claim the blessings of Israel, never the curses. Um, but here, this is uh, God making an incredible promise mm. to Israel. God is uh, promising and blessing them. It's so awesome. Um, yeah. It's, it's so awesome. And before we jump out of 44, uh, which the list is wanting us to do, I, I cannot go past the following verses, if I may, Michael. It says in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Verse 6 goes on to say, You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. No, not one. It says in uh, verse 21, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. O Jacob and Israel, you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. So very, very clear. Now, the next one on the list, uh, chapter 45, verses 23 to 24. Oh, boy, do you see the gold we have to jump over to read those? <laughs> I don't know that I can do it. Can I? Can I just? Can I? I think I, I have to read there's it. There's so much here. It is amazing. There's just so much here. Like we don't usually do this, but there's just such gleaming gold here that I think I just have to read some of them. Let me just have a look here. Uh, it, it, okay, so in verse, uh, I don't know, verse, the end of verse 14, it says, There is no other, there is no other God. Truly, you are God who hide yourself, a God of Israel, the Savior. And uh, it goes on to say, it says, Who has declared from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me. Look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath and say, Surely in Yudhevavhevi, in the Lord, I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come. Oh, it just, it's just so brilliant. Anyway, what's, what does it want me to read? It wants me to read 23 to 24. Oh, I just did. Oh, that's good. Okay, well, I just read that one. Now, the corresponding verse to Isaiah 45, 23 to 24 uh, is, uh, oh, and also, she also cites uh, in the list Isaiah 51, verse 5, which says, uh, my righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, my arms will judge uh, the people and the coastlands will wait upon me. And on my arm they will trust. The corresponding verse according to the list is John chapter 5 verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. All right. The uh, messianic prophecy fulfilled is that he will be the judge. Boy, it detracts from the, the absolute brilliance of Isaiah 45. Can we just talk about that? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, th th this is sort of falling into a pattern. Um, uh, you know, again, th th it, it's hard to really read chapter 45 without being hit over the head with who it's really speaking about. This is speaking about the creator of every atom of existence. This is speaking about the God mm. who gives every human being, even Jesus, every breath that they take. Mm. And um, what we're being told here, although the Hebrew actually does not really clearly speak about God being the judge, but we know that God is the judge and God will be the judge. And that, that's not really any kind of news to hear that God will judge the world. Um, the, the problem is that there's no proof that this is speaking about Jesus other than the assertion 
that John makes that you know the father has given all judgment to the son. Um, but there's, again, there's no what? empirical evidence that that that. Uh, <laughs> what I don't understand, though, sorry to interrupt, Michael, but what I don't understand is why uh, Carmen does not cite uh, Paul in in Philippians chapter two. I mean, after all, I mean, this is the Carmen Christie. I would have thought the Carmen's middle name would have been Christie. You think? <laughs> Good heavens! Because it it takes uh, from Isaiah forty five and it, it tweaks it a little bit, and and it says. Therefore, God is highly exalted. This is from verse 9 of uh, Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, or at the name of Yeshua, for you come, and there you go, every knee should bow for those uh, of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, okay, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But that's not what it says in 45. It says, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. And he shall say, Surely in Yudhevape, surely in the Lord, I have righteousness and strength. Uh, this is what it says. Yeah, I, but she hasn't. She hasn't put it in the list. But the the issue really is that the the the, the I guess the overwhelming uh, sense that Christians have had, um, I think, with very few exceptions, even today, is they they axiomatically identify Jesus with. God, the Creator, um, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, again, it's something. Well, what, what else would you want? What else would you want? Even just the Book of Isaiah to say to show you absolutely that that is not the case. Well, again, but but this becomes an axiomatic Christian belief, and it's something that they accept on faith. Um, you know, despite how, and it's interesting. Tertullian said that he believes, bec- in some ways, because it's absurd. He felt that. You know, if the belief made sense, there'd be no virtue in believing in it. So, the the on some level, the absurdity of pointing to uh, you know a, a Jew who lived in Israel two thousand years ago and died and was buried, and claiming that he created the world and he still runs the world and um, you know he's to be identified with the God that split the sea. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's a it's a it's an incredible thing to believe, but again, the Christian would assert that that's the truth and uh, we're blind for not seeing it. You know, the question is, you know, we, we can't debate belief, but I think we're here to talk about the scripture and what is simply missing from Isaiah is anything that would back the Christian belief, meaning that the, the Christian uh, perspective can insist that Jesus uh, is the creator and that Jesus is to be identified with uh, the Almighty that brought the world into existence, um, but Isaiah doesn't give us any reason to assume that um, the Creator God um, would ever be manifest in human flesh. And that mm-hmm. really would have been. You see, that's the point I was trying to make before. That all of these beautiful sermonettes that we were reading in Isaiah, in all of these chapters, there isn't any effort. Uh, by Isaiah to even give us a remote clue that this God that created the world and that magnificently has been running the world since its its inception, that this God would be coming into our world and take on human flesh, and uh, you know, and and uh, you know, somehow uh, you know, be living in it just for thirty years in, in Israel at a certain period in history. 
there's just nothing there. And one of the things mm. that I once did as a project, I'll, I'll just sort of re- recommend that the readers, that the listeners do this. I once took my Bible and starting with Genesis and going to the very, very end of the Hebrew Scriptures, I just tried to highlight which were the passages in the Bible that speak about God and the nature of God. That's all I was doing. I was just trying to find what are the passages where the context of the passage is to, to speak about the nature of God, who is God, what is, how, do we, how are we to understand God. And there are many. There are dozens and dozens of passages where the, the clear context of the passage is speaking about who is God and what is the nature of God. And when I looked at all of these passages, I asked myself, do any of them even hint at the idea that we're to understand this God as a trinity or to understand this God as someone who will at some point in history take on human flesh and live amongst the Jewish people? It's not hinted at even. And it's certainly not taught clearly and consistently. And so that becomes the great problem. I mean, people are free to believe what they would like to believe, but I think that to take that belief and try and impose it upon these magnificent uh, chapters in Isaiah just doesn't work. Doesn't work. And I think that I've met people, and I think you've met people as well, that after studying these chapters of Isaiah, walk away saying, you know what, I just can't accept these these yep. uh, long-standing beliefs of the church. It just doesn't... Mm. It's like putting a square peg into a round circle. It doesn't fit. Mm. Exactly the case. I think we're going to have to kick off from Isaiah... For, the next one on the list is Isaiah 48, and I think we're going to have to do that next uh, next week. But before we leave, I just, want to, I just want to read out just two more verses, if I may, that the list would happily skip. I mean, they're not... Uh, obviously, it's not going to appear on, the, on on a list of messianic prophecies fulfilled. But there's again in Isaiah, you just while you're in the vicinity, you can't let these ones go. Uh, Isaiah 46 verse 5 it says to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike love that verse and uh, and again uh, verse 10 uh, verse 9 it says uh, for I am God and there is no other I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning from the uh, and from ancient times things that are not yet done such a great oh man I say it's delicious so delicious it's delicious as Toby <laughs> singer would say it's absolutely delicious and it's and it is the word it is like honey to your tongue my friend thank you for coming back on to truth to you Rabbi Michael Skoback of Jews for Judaism.ca Jews for Judaism in Canada and uh, again I will put a link to all the details in regards to the survival seminar uh, that you're currently uh, doing. And if you're there in Toronto, you can get the details. You should go. It goes until the 3rd of March. If you're not, it is available to listen to in MP3 format. Also to watch on their YouTube channel. There will be a link on this post. Once again, thank you, my friend. Thank you so much. And have a wonderful, wonderful week. And you too. And until next time, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom.